All right. I walk up here, and, I, and <clears throat> Seth is praying still, and I'm walking up, and he's like, one more song, one more song. I'm like, no, I know there's not one more song, but he's like, one more song. I'm like, I don't want this to be my first impression of walking up here the wrong time. Um, you don't want to hear me sing. I'm one of those people where people start clapping on stage, and my wife just puts her hands on mine and says, that is not for you, because I am offbeat the whole time. It is embarrassing. It is bad. Uh, but man, I am grateful to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, Mercy Hill is one of those places, uh, this church is one of these churches that down in Texas we've been praying for, down in Texas we've been keeping up with, keeping track of, because we love what is happening here. We love Ernie and this team, and we love you guys. And so the fact that I get to be up here and speaking to you and sharing something from the Word of God this morning is an incredible privilege for me, uh, and I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful for what we get to look at together today. Uh, Ernie mentioned before I got up here that I have a wife. She's in the second row, not the first, which is, we'll have a conversation about that uh, later. Um, but with our relationship, we also have a daughter. She's two and a half. Her name is Charlotte. She's not here, uh, but she's the cutest thing I've ever seen in the world. Uh, she, so what you need to know about her is that she's a sensitive spirit. Okay, So whenever my wife and I are having spirited disagreements, um, you know what they are. If you're in a relationship, you know what spirited disagreements really means. Church-appropriate version of saying fight. We were fighting with each other. Um, and so as we're having spirited disagreements, she's running back and forth between us saying, shh, shh, you stop talking, Daddy. Mommy, you need a nap. And it's like, okay. Like, it's like, how do, how do you get over something so cute? It's just like the cute... So she, my wife's also taught her how to shop recently, and so which is a little terrifying. It's really cute, but it's kind of terrifying that she already knows. But she walks up and down the aisles, and she grabs hangers off, and, and she's saying, I shopping, Mommy, I shopping. And she's got her little hangers that she's carrying around the store. And I swear, it's just, we'll just buy everything. She can have whatever she wants. Um, so we have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, but we also have a negative five-month-old daughter, meaning my wife's pregnant, uh, in case you kind of didn't understand what's happening there. Um, so that daughter has yet to come into the world, but when she does, something will instantly be true of her. The moment that she bursts forth into this world, she will have an instant vertical connection between us as her parents. That relationship is instantly established. Marked into her DNA is a sign that she is ours, and nothing that she decides to do throughout her life will change the fact that she is our daughter. But at the same time as she be begins this vertical relationship between us as her parents and her as her daughter, there's also a horizontal relationship that, begin that becomes true as well. Because at the same time as she becomes our daughter, she also becomes a sister or a sibling. And I'm saying her because I don't really know what it is yet. We haven't figured it out, but it's easier and sounds better than saying it or whatever it is. So it's a her in my mind. So, but as she is born, she instantly becomes a sibling with her sister, Charlotte. That becomes instantly, instantaneously true. And the, those relationships between each other are so strong that the quality of her, their relationship as sisters impacts the quality of their relationship with us as her parents. Yeah. Uh, you know as parents that there's nothing that warms a parent's heart more than when you see your, 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 your children getting along with each other and loving each other and enjoying each other. And you're like, yes, that's true, right? Yeah, you get that. Yeah, I mean, we don't have any yet, so I'm just kind of going out based off of the way that the world typically works. So you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that that's actually true. Um, but why do I say this? Because the same thing is true for us in Christ. Last week, when you guys were here working through Ephesians, 
uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it's all about this vertical relationship that becomes established. That the moment that you accept Christ, you become a child of God. It's, in, it's stamped into you. There's nothing that you can do to change that. Like there's no, there's no action that you can take that will make God revoke that. You develop this instantaneous individual personal relationship vertically with the Father and you become his child. The passage that we're going to be looking at tonight is that at the same time you develop that vertical relationship, you also develop a horizontal relationship. At the same time you get a father, you also get a, a brother and a sister. You also get a family. The problem is, is that too many times, too frequently, we tend to treat Christianity as an individual connection with God. That's what we emphasize. And it's like we almost show up here and, and we just happen to all show up here at the same time because that's where the band is. And that's where worship is happening. But that's not what, that's not what Paul, and that's, what not, that's not what God had in mind when he created the church because he's not just creating people that love him. He's also creating people that love each other. He's creating a family. And so tonight, or this, I'm going to say tonight a thousand times because I normally preach at night and that is just what I say. But this morning, we are going to be looking at a passage that's talking about this connection with each other, this family that God is creating. And we're going to see three different things that are happening. We're going to see just how mind-blowing it is that God is building the type of family that he's building. And then we're going to see the way that he has gone about making that family is a key to the success of the family. And then when that family comes together, hearts are transformed and the world is changed. We're going to see those three different things as we go through our passages tonight or this morning. Like I said, it's going to happen all the time. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. You've got Bibles under your seats. If you didn't bring one, uh, grab it and pull it open. There's no shame in table of contents. We've all been there at some point. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 12 is where we're going to start. Paul's writing, the guy who wrote the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus is saying, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Like there's a lot there, and there's a lot of words that are thrown around in there, and it's a really confusing thing to understand, so I'm going to try to explain some of it. You see that word Gentiles, right? You see it in verse 11. So Gentiles uh, is the contradiction to Jews. So you have Jews and Gentiles, these two people groups. Jews are the Jewish people that we all know, and Gentiles are pretty much everybody else. And so Gentiles are people that are ethnically different than the Jewish people. They're ethnically separated. And so you'll remember that he says that these Gentiles, hey, before I tell you what I want you to remember, he says this. He says, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Let me explain what Paul is getting at, what he's trying to help us understand there. So before he tells the Gentiles, hey, Gentiles, because of what it just said in verses 1 through 10, this is true. Remember these things. Before he says what to remember, he says, also, you Gentiles, you were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. So he sets up these two groups. And he's saying not only is there a difference between Jews and Gentiles ethnically, but there's also hostility between them. You have this group called the circumcision. That was the Jewish people. It wouldn't be my name for a group, but they really took a lot of pride in that. Because in the book of Genesis, what happens was, was that when God was setting up the Jewish people, he gave them this sign of circumcision as a reminder that they were his chosen people. They were God's special people. And so they took great pride in the fact that they were those people. 
The problem is, is that the Jews were supposed to be a kingdom of priests. They were supposed to be a people that brought that blessing that God gave to them as his special chosen people to the rest of the world. They were supposed to be doing that. But what happens with all of us when we end up in a privileged position, we wanted to keep that special privilege for ourselves and they wanted to keep it for themselves too. And so they didn't become a kingdom of priests. They became their own group that stayed with the covenants and promises of God alone and didn't bring others in. They said, we are the circumcised, the chosen people of God, and you are not. You are the uncircumcised. They had developed into us's and they had created them. And you're like, then he moves on. He says, okay, so there's this circumcision and the circumcision, the Jews didn't like the Gentiles. They called them the uncircumcised. And he says that the circumcision that is done in the flesh and done by hands. And you're like, of course it was done by hands. Who's circumcising people without their hands? And the logistics of that is things that we probably shouldn't be considering right now. (laughs) He says they're made in the flesh by hands. And he says it's done in the flesh because all throughout the Old Testament, we see the people of God have the external trappings of religion, yet uh, inwardly their hearts are untransformed and unredeemed. Outwardly they look good, but inwardly it's rotten. God's saying, I don't just care about your external actions, I care about your heart. They're playing religious games. And he says that this circumcision, it was done in the flesh because it was done without the right heart behind it. It was an empty action of the flesh. And he says it was done by hands because all throughout the Bible, whenever God says it was made by hands, it means that it was made apart from God. It was not spiritual. It was not good in the sight of God. It was not something that he's into. And so Paul's highlighting something here that we all know to be true, that we have an amazing propensity to separate into us's and them's, don't we? It's just something that we do. It is so natural to us. We separate into us's and them's. Even from when we were young, I remember when I was fifth grade, sixth grade, I uh, had this group of neighborhood buddies and we had a rival group of neighborhood buddies. We had a rival uh, neighborhood gangs that we were a part of. It was a good time. Um, As fifth graders, (laughs) it wasn't... It was a good time, though, actually. We really enjoyed it. We, we enjoyed having hostility between each other. Uh, as fifth graders, so we formed these rivalries around made-up conflicts. Like, now I couldn't even tell you what they were, but they were just some conflicts that we had made up that we didn't like the other people, uh, that we didn't like them. We really enjoyed us. And so we resolved our conflicts in a couple different ways. Uh, we resolved it one way by playing tackle football in the backyard. It was our way of getting our aggression out. Uh, and it went really, really well. And then one day or one night when we were playing tackle football at night, I broke this guy's knee. I broke his face, his cheekbone with my knee. Yeah, it's a story for another time, though. Because the other thing that we did when we had to resolve conflicts is that we had mud fights, okay? And now this is not like we're sitting in a drainage ditch with, with mud after rain, just kind of smiling and giggling and tossing mud at each other's face and laughing about how dirty we were. No, we grabbed this mud and we formed it into balls and then baked it, put it out in the sun to bake until it was hardened. And then we went at it revolutionary war style, okay? So like you're in a field, it was literally a field and you just had your ammo with you and you're just slinging hardened mud at each other until one team caved. It was a great way to resolve conflict. (laughs) And we fought and hated each other for a very, very long time. We were so immersed in our rivalry that we descended into physical violence against each other. It's a humorous example of how deep it goes, but we as people, we know that every one of us, we have an us, a people that we are comfortable with, the people that we feel comfortable with because they look like us, they dress like us, they act like us, they think like us. 
We all have an us. And when we get around these people, it puts us at ease because they are familiar to us. They accept the things that we accept. They are like us. It's our group. And we form us around all kinds of things. We say, I'm a suburban mom and you're a suburban mom. We say, you study bioengineering and I study bioengineering. We say, we say you're a part of this team and I'm a part of this team. We form us around all kinds of different things. Now, what I'm saying is not that those things are bad. It's normal and it's okay that there are some people that we are more comfortable around than others. But the problem is, is that the more we idolize the us, the more we demonize the them. The more we idolize the us, the more we demonize the them. The more we idolize our sports teams, the more we hate the fans of the other team. The more we idolize our political party, the more we can't stand the people that believe something else and they must be silenced. The more we idolize the us, the more we demonize the them. The more we idolize our community, the ones that dress like us, the ones that look like us, the ones that act like us, think like us, the more we, the more we reject the people that don't do those things. The more they are bad, the more they are villains, the more that we cannot be around them. Because the more we idolize the us, the more we demonize them. And if you were to look throughout history of humanity, the more we separate out into us's and them's. And you could take a tour around the world today and see example after example of physical walls that have been built between nations because people hate these people on the other side of the wall so much that if they had the opportunity, they would kill them. See, walls in Russia, walls in Africa, walls in Israel. You look throughout the world and you see reminder after reminder of people who have idolized the us and therefore demonized the, the them and separate out into those groups. Look back, if you look at the passage, he then moves into the Gentiles. He says, Gentiles, there was a time, he's telling them what to remember in verse 12. There was a time, remember, that you were separated from Christ you are apart from Christ. The promises, not just that you didn't believe in Christ, but the promises that were given to the Jews did not apply to you. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the holy theocratic government and nation that was set up, which is Israel. You were not a part of that. You were strangers to these covenants of promise that were given to the Jews, and you had no hope, and you were without God in the world. And you were without God. But he continues then in verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's saying you were far away, but because of what Jesus did, the things and the promises that applied to the Jews are now being applied to you as well. Let me explain to you kind of another way to think about this. I want you to picture an orphanage somewhere in a third world country, a place of squalor and brokenness and pain, a place of poverty. And what happens is you have two orphans. And, and a couple from America one day, I tell the orphanage, we want to adopt a child. And they find pictures online and they, and they pick a child. They pick one of those two children. And the person that works at that orphanage comes to that child and says, hey, guess what? You've been picked. You've been picked. You've been chosen. This couple from America is looking to adopt and they've chosen you. They want you. And then what happens is over time, they start to write letters to you as a child. You start to get pictures of what your house will look like. This is what your bed will look like. This is what your dog will look like. This is what your family is going to be. They start to write letters. You start to get pictures. And then they start to come and visit you and saying, hey, I'm coming. We're going to be coming to get you soon. It's a process. We'll be here soon, but it's not time yet. But we're getting it all in order so that when we come, you're going to come with us. And then one day that day comes. And, and, and that couple shows up and they kneel down and they get their son I love you, son. I've waited so long for you. And as they stand up to go, they look at that other kid and they say, you too. You too. 
And you're like, what? There was none of the paperwork, none of the letters, none of the pictures. I wasn't being set up for this, but now all of a sudden you've said, you too, you picked me. That doesn't make any sense. He's like, yes, that's right. And you're coming with me. What happened with the Jews and Gentiles what happened is that the Jews were the ones that were picked. God was writing the letters. He's saying, this is what your life is going to be. We have come for you. And then when he shows up, and, and, and as Jesus shows up on the earth, he's saying to the Gentiles, you too. He's saying to all of us, you too. Because unless you're Jewish here, you were the ones that were on the outside. You were the, the child of the orphanage that was not wanted. You didn't have the letters. You didn't have the pictures. And then when Jesus came, he said, you too. That's the only reason why you're in this family now. Because you too. Now, verse 14 continues. He's telling the Gentiles, hey, remember that the only hope that you have is because Jesus came for you through his work. He continues in verse 14. He says what he did. He said, for he, meaning Jesus, is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. If you were to go to the temple of, in Jerusalem, there was a literal wall that was built up. So Paul is using a metaphor, but it's based off of a real life symbol of separation between the Jews and Gentiles. In the temple, there was a, uh, there was a, a wall that separated the inner court from the outer court. And on this wall, in written in Greek and Latin, was reminded, was telling the Gentiles that if you crossed that wall, you could be killed. And they believed it so strongly that the Roman government, when gave the Jews the, the ability of capital punishment so that they could kill the Gentiles that walked across that line. The divide between the groups was deep and the animosity was fierce. And he says, though, that this divide was destroyed. How? by making the two groups into one through his flesh. The Jews and Gentiles were separated, but they've been brought together into one group, one family. Now, he continues on in verses 15 and 16. He says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, saying that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, he created in himself this new man, one man in place of two. He made peace between them and might, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. And he came and preached to you, peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. One of the things that you can do if you want to supercharge your time reading the Bible yourself is to always ask the questions, why was that included? If you think about what you looked at last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he's already talked about this idea that God has brought this reconciliation. He's brought, this, uh, he's brought peace into the lives of people. But now all of a sudden, it seems like he's recapping the gospel. It seems like he's recapping. Don't forget that you were sinful, you, like you saw last week. You were children of wrath. Don't forget that was true. And also don't forget, true, don't forget that it was true, that God brought reconciliation. That happened as well. So why would he be bringing that back up again in this context of this family? Why is that so important that, that he repeats it again, even though he just said it? Because humility destroys hostility. Humility destroys hostility. Some of you are here and you know that you're messed up and that's not news to you that you were far off. Some of you, though, that you feel like you were pretty good. You've been in the church for a while. It's a normal thing. And when you look at the world around you, you look at your life, you're like, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as they are. And what happens is that you start to get a little prideful. You start to think that maybe you deserved your way in, that you earned it. And so when you interact with people that are on the opposite end, you start to think that they're a little bit dirty. They're the them. I'm on us. 
And I want them to be a part of things, but I don't want them to be part of my things. I want them to stay over there with their thing, with their group. Paul's reminding us that the key to this family is to remember who you once were because grace makes us generous. Grace makes us generous. If I can be honest with you for a second, some of you have had a similar experience as I have had, but one of the most painful places that you have been and that some of the most painful interactions I have had is at the hands and the words of other Christians. They say things as they're supposedly these grace-filled, love-filled people, people that accept all, but then when they interacted with you and sometimes when they've interacted with me, those are the most harsh and bitter and biting words that I've, he- that I've heard. It's left the deepest of wounds. Some of you, you sit there and you have those same experiences. You know what that is true. And the reason why that happens is that they forgot that they needed grace as well. Because when we become arrogant and prideful in who we are and how good we are, it makes us hostile to other people. What Paul is saying, never forget who you are is the key to the success of this family. That if this family is going to succeed, you must remember that you're just as broken as everybody else. I've heard people say that AA meetings, Alcoholics Anonymous, are some of the most honest and open and accepting groups. Because it doesn't matter who's sitting around that circle. You have the black person, you've got the white person, you've got the Democrat, you've got the Republican, you've got the suburban mom, you've got the corporate lawyer, you've got the high school dropout, you've got the PhD student. It doesn't matter who's sitting around. They all know that they are there for the same reasons. Because they messed up. Because they were broken. And there's no hiding. They all recognize that everyone is there for the same exact reason. It doesn't matter all of these other groups they identify with. In that circle, the thing that is the most evident is that they messed up and they were broken and they needed help. Listen, if Mercy Hill is going to become a family, you must never forget who you once were. You must never begin to believe that you earned your way into this family. You must never forget that you were people that were far off and only by the grace of Jesus you have brought in, been brought inside. If this is going to be a place where the homeless man who hangs out in Washington Park is able to sit next to the suburban mom from Montgomery, if this is ever going to be a place where the UC student who's still a little hungover from the night before is able to sit down next to the corporate lawyer, if the Republicans and the Democrats are going to be able to join in this group as one family together, then you must never forget who you once were. You must never forget that you did not earn your way, that you were only here by the grace and blood of Jesus alone. Otherwise, this place is going to be exactly what it is like out in the world. It's going to be no different. It's not a family. You're just a bunch of people that came here because this is where the band was at. We've seen so far that we were once far off with no hope outside the promises of God. And now through Christ Jesus, we have been brought near. And when we've been brought near unto a spirit of humility, we've been brought near by grace alone, having nothing to do with us, with our ability to earn it, understand that we were once forgotten in the orphanage. Paul continues then that before we do what we are called to do, we can't forget our purpose. Look in verse 19 through 20, the last four verses. He says, so then, as almost an application, as because of what I've just said, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I want you to notice verse 19 first. 
verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. I don't know if you've ever been a stranger in a foreign land. If you've ever gone and traveled overseas, I'm an anxious traveler. I know some of you thrive overseas, but I hate being overseas because I don't like that I can't speak the language. I don't like that I don't know how to get places. I don't like that I can't pay for the things I normally pay for with the things I normally pay with. I don't like those things. I'm an anxious traveler. You can ask my wife. I know that's sacrilege in our world today of Instagram envy and wanderlust, which is a terrible name for everything. I hate that word. Um, But I'm an anxious traveler. I know what it's like to be a stranger in a foreign land and you're never at peace. You're always wondering where your papers are, where your wallet's at, who's around me, where am I trying to go? How am I trying to get there? Do I have enough time? Do I have enough? We're anxious people when we're strangers in a foreign land. I remember one time we were uh, in the college ministry that I'm a part of. We go on these things called summer projects, which are are two month long mission trips overseas to an unreached and unengaged place. Uh, And so one time we went to China and we went into the city. We were out probably an hour away, normally where we lived. We went into the city. As my wife and I, we went to dinner with, with a couple that was, that was living there. And on the way back, we, we were taking the metro, which is the subway places. And on the way back, for some reason, whatever, I don't know why, maybe we got there late or it wasn't working, but we couldn't get back onto the train. The, the, the subway station was closed that we were at. And so I'm standing at night, it's like 10 o'clock at night, in the middle of this place where nobody understands English. I can't communicate a single thing to anybody. I have no phone service, so I can't navigate to some other place. I have like an old brick phone, and that is all that I have. And I'm just standing there with my new wife, stranded out in the middle of nowhere, no one has any idea where we are, and I am terrified. Because you have all of these people that are streaming past on either side, and I am the only white face in that crowd. And everyone that, that walks past, that drives past, they just stare at me because I'm this unique object that's just out there in the midst of a sea of people that don't look like me. And I'm terrified. And I'm trying to call people. I'm trying to get a hold of people, and no one's answering their phones. I'm, trying to, I, I got, I get, I'm able to text one person. He's like, hey, I've called you an Uber. But every time I try to call him back, I can't get a hold of him. And I have no idea what I'm going to do. But then all of a sudden, this guy comes out of the crowd. And he starts beckoning to us. He's like, hey, come with me. Come on, come on, come on. I'm like, I don't know who you are, but I'm guessing I'm going to go with you because why would I not do that? I have no other option. I've got no other plan. And so I go and follow this guy. Turns out this was the Uber driver, okay? And I don't know how he found us because I, as we're, I'm, I'm like, think, I'm like over here. Like, I, there's no way for him to see us. We're far away. And he has to walk through a building through the double set of doors and come out on the other side, go under this bridge, and then find us. How he found us, I have no idea. But what I'm trying to communicate here is that what God has done is that he has emerged out of the darkness of the night and beckoned to you and me and says, come with me. When he says that you were strangers and you were aliens, but you've been brought into the household of God, he took your passport and he gave you a birth certificate. He said, no longer are you a foreigner, but now you're mine. Now you're in this household. You're with me. What he does, he calls us into a family, and then he sends us back out. 
He sends us back out as the Uber drivers to the one on the side of the road in the darkness saying, how in the world am I gonna get home? What am I going to do? I am lost, I am scared, I'm alone. And what he does, you're gonna read later in the book of Ephesians, he says that we've been called ministers of reconciliation. If you look in the book of Matthew, we've been commanded to go. We aren't just given a place to come and sit and enjoy, but we've been given a family to be a part of, but to be launched back out to bring others in. All right, if you stay here and the only thing you ever do is sit here, and be a part of a community, man, that's not a bad thing to be a part of community, but you failed to go out and fulfill the rest of what you've been brought into the family to do, to bring others in. You've been sent out to bring others into the household and the family of God. Paul then, when you look at verses 20 through 22, he kind of gives this concluding idea. He said, this house or this family is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It's based on foundation, you think of it like the teaching of the apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the thing upon which this entire structure is built off of, the, the central thing, everything is measured and everything is based off of the things that he has done. And in whom the whole structure, he says, in Christ Jesus is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This temple language would have been very significant and very familiar to the people that were listening to this for the first time. Because in, if you're in Ephesus, they had their city temple with their city God. Uh, then you had the Jews with the temple in Jerusalem. They knew this term and they knew the idea of a temple. But God says, this temple that I'm building is different. It's not made out of bricks this time, but it's made out of people. It's made out of members of this family. Not only you are a member of the family, but now you're a brick in the temple. You're, you're, you're not only in the household, but you are the house. A temple back then was a place that God were to dwell. And he used to dwell in one place, separated by a wall, separating different people. But now God says that wall is gone, that temple is gone, and now my people are the temple. My people are the place where the glory of God will be on display. My people are the place well, when people want to know the type of God that I am, they will look to them, not to a physical building. They look to you and to me. They look to you and to me. Listen, so when you are brought into the house, it's a unity and diversity that brings greater glory to God. It's a unity and diversity that brings greater glory to God. It's the joining of the us's and them's that the world would normally look at and say, there's no way, but it's joining of those people that, people, that greater glory will be given to God. It's people who celebrate the outlaw of abortion, combined with people that are fighting for women's reproductive rights. The Black Lives Matter activist is brought into the same family as the cop. The Arab refugee is being brought into the same family as the Texas Ranger fighting for a border wall. The people that the world looks and says they will never get along. In the church, they are found one place to be, one family that is united under something that is greater than whatever it is that they were once united behind. The first question that I want to leave you with today is are you an agent of diversity or, uh, I'm sorry, are you an agent of division or are you an agent of unity? Are you an agent of division or are you an agent of unity? See, because in every group we form, there is something that brings us together. And when we form around other groups besides the blood and grace of Jesus, what it does and what we are communicating is that there is something else that is greater than what God has done in my life that I will unite behind and I will fight for that thing and everything else is subservient to that. 
When we let lesser things come between us, we tear down the living temple brick by brick. And instead of being a temple for the Lord, a monument for his glory, we end up merely being a bunch of bricks striving to display our own glory and yet, the, and yet only ever being a bunch of bricks. Ask yourself, is your small group stronger because you were there? because you brought people in? Is Mercy Hill stronger because you were there? Are you letting gossip spill forth from your mouth and thus creating cracks in the family? Are you fighting for unity or are you just creating fights? If you find yourself being divisive, if that's true and evident in your life, then I will tell you these three things. Remember, repent, and reconcile. Remember who you were. Repent before Jesus and then reconcile with your family. And I will tell you to go in that exact same order. Remember who you once were, repent before Jesus, and reconcile with your family. The second question I want to leave you with is, are you treating the church like a household, or are you treating it like a hotel? A hotel is a place that you show up to every once in a while, and whenever you get some good service, maybe you'll leave a tip and a good review. Paul's saying that is not what the church was intended to be. That's a church was intended to be a family, a place that fights for each other. Even when the, the service isn't as good, even when it doesn't end up looking the way that I want it to look, or I don't feel the way I want to feel, it's a family. And you don't walk out on family. You stay and you invest. And when you're a part of a household, you're a part of a family, you're serving in that family, you're working in that family. Everybody has a role to play. So are you treating the place that is church, like in your church and the church, like a hotel, or are you treating it like a household? What is your role that you're playing there? And lastly, and probably most importantly, are you in the house? Or are you still on the outside? Are you in the house? Are you a part of the family? Are you still somebody on the outside looking in? Are you the one that God has looked at and says, you too, and you follow along with? Or are you still the child in the orphanage that has no hope, no family, alone. You have nothing going for you because the invitation has been extended to you because God has pointed the finger and said, I want you too. And what you have to say is, God, I will go with. Or you can choose to stay exactly where you are with no hope and separated outside of the household, not a part of the family. If you want to be a part of the family, if you want to say, God, I'm in, I'm with you, then you can do that. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and I simply just want you to follow along with me. You can say, God, I want to be a part of that family. The band's going to come up. We're going to worship again. I want you to follow along with me if you want to be in part of the family of God tonight or this morning. Lord Jesus, I'm outside of the family, God, but I need you. I want to be in. I want to be a part of what you're doing. I need you in my life. I have no hope apart from you. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. If you prayed that tonight or this morning, goodness gracious, if you prayed that this morning, then we would love to celebrate with you. We'd love to help you take a next step. We'd love to help you walk into that relationship that you just entered into. At the next step ten, or the next step table out in the lobby, we'd have people there that would love to celebrate with you and help you take a next step. And Lord Jesus, for the rest of us, God, we are here by your grace and your blood alone. We were hopeless, 
We were separated before you came for us. And so, Jesus, I pray that that is the thing that unites Mercy Hill above anything else, that we are united behind the grace and the blood of you. Lord, that as we walk into this city, as we bring the gospel to people who have no hope, Lord, as we engage the world and see people that are radically different, transformed into followers of you, Lord, I pray that that is something that the people in this room never forget, that we are here by the grace and blood of Jesus alone. Lord, tear down any, hum- any hostility by making us humble people. Jesus, we love you. And as we worship you, Lord, let us worship you as a family unhindered. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen.